Protests in France, and yes, we know Catholicism in Vatican, more as we have it. However, with all due respect to the noble French tradition of expressing the mildest grievance by progressing straight to flinging café tables at the gendarmes, this week's protests in France do have a much wider resonance. At issue is President Emmanuel Macron's proposal to raise France's retirement age from 62 to 64 by 2030. France is far from alone in attempting to reconcile its pension system with modern reality. Pensions, as the citizens of wealthy countries enjoy them now, are still rooted in early 20th century assumptions that people are physically ruined by a life of back-breaking labour by the time they're 50 and will drop obligingly dead shortly after that. State pensions were never intended to underwrite decades-long holidays for increasingly healthy and capable older people. And in the developed world, at least, not only are those older people spending longer with their pensions, there are fewer younger people available to pay for their retirements. This century, the populations of Japan and South Korea, most notably, are expected to dwindle by at least one-third. Can President Macron win this fight? What can governments do about a declining and ageing population? And how weird does all this look from the perspective of the younger generations anticipating the bill? This is The Foreign Desk. Young women in particular are kind of faced with an either-or choice. You can have a career or you can have a family. It's really hard to have both. And for men, I think the expectations of being sort of the primary earner and breadwinner, if you will, in that kind of environment may also be increasingly unattractive or unattainable for some people. I think our parents very much raised us with the expectation that we would do better than them, almost certainly, and actually, you know, in many cases we did. That is kind of no longer the case. So I think, you know, that the kind of subtext to a lot of these anxieties among the sort of millennials is actually saying that, hang on, I thought I would be able to provide my children not just with the sort of upbringing I had, but probably one that was even better, so they can keep getting better, etc. And suddenly we're seeing that that's not the case. And, you know, there's no great surprise, I think, that that creates quite a lot of angst, again, because we're not entirely sure what we're supposed to do next. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and joining me first of all from Paris is the journalist and author Agnès Poirier. Agnès, first of all, let's start with these protests, and we do, of course, have to insert the caveat by French standards. So by French standards, how big have these protests been? Well, I'm very happy you're talking about by French standards because it's very difficult from a board to understand when you get figures of millions of protesters, demonstrators in the streets of France, the whole world is usually thinking that this is the revolution again. But no, they are French standards. And okay, so we've had the second day of demonstration this week on Tuesday. Almost 1.3 million people demonstrated in the streets of France, not in the streets of Paris, in the streets of France. That's a good number. It's not exceptional, but it's a good number. And it's slightly more than during the first day of March against the pension reform, 14 days or about a fortnight before that. So the number is increasing, which is a worry, of course, for the government. Now, having said this, 
There's the march in the streets and there's also the strike on the same day. And the mobilization of people on strike, whether in schools or on trains, in oil refineries or power stations, have actually decreased and quite significantly. So we have this strange phenomenon of more people demonstrating in the streets, but fewer people actually on strike. To what do you ascribe the size and the anger of these particular protests? Because fundamentally, I think from a lot of international perspectives, what President Macron is proposing doesn't seem that outrageous. He wants to raise one of the world's lowest retirement ages only another two years to 64, which would still be one of the world's lowest retirement ages. Well, yeah, another very good question. Because, yes, objectively, it's a very modest pension reform. You know, it can be seen as irrational and objectively it is irrational if you compare to the rest of the world. But I think the French are not concerned by what's happening outside. Also, to understand the topic and the subject better, most of French people rely on state pension. France has no private scheme, you know, there's no individual pot for retirement. And so unless you're extremely rich, well, you will rely on the state to provide you with a pension. So it makes it a very sensitive and a very personal topic for the French. The other thing too, of course, you could also argue that President Macron was elected and actually twice to carry out that reform. But, you know, the French want everything to change and yet oppose all changes. And that's the (laughs) French contradiction is that soon as they've elected a president, they resist their president. So we have a very French phenomenon taking place in France at the moment, because if you look at the French economy, well, all figures are are pretty good. If you look at the unemployment, it has decreased 10% in just a year. And also the dynamism of foreign investment in France, which is the highest in Europe, for instance, more than Germany, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. There is one problem with the pension system is that it's in massive and permanent deficit Mm. today because of demography. And it means that 33 billion euros every year are taken from general taxation in order for the system not to go bust. Polls suggest that somewhere in the vicinity of two-thirds of French people oppose President Macron on this. But among that vast opposition, has there been any constructive suggestions? Has anybody had any better ideas for how France, which is facing a demographic crisis to which you alluded, is going to keep paying the pensions it is already paying? Well, the trade unions say because the figures of the economy are rather good, we can continue affording that system for some time. And it is true, if you'd like. But President Macron, A, was elected on that reform and B, would like to generate, in a way, some income to get that $33 billion a year is taking from general taxation, which is, you know, the equivalent of half the defence budget in order to put it somewhere else. But of course, that's a sort of what we call in France, what we consider a sort of ultra-liberal point. And uh, President Macron is uh, clever enough not to make that point, at least publicly. So he says that 
for instance, his reform, which is modest, will benefit a lot of people, among them, for instance, women who have had a checkered employment history and they will have a minimum of a thousand and two hundred euros a month, for instance, which in effect is really an improvement on the current system. What's your sense, though, of why President Macron is so determined on this? He did want to do this in his first term, but it sort of got put on the back burner due to the pandemic. He has been re-elected, of course, though he has lost his majority in Parliament, but he can't run for president again. It would be very easy for him just to take a pass on this and hand it off to the next person. Why is he so determined that this is going to be the thing he does? Well, because he's got another four years and, you know, he will be a lame duck. I mean, imagine he's been in power for less than a year. Mm. And if he doesn't manage to pass with the help of the centre-right and the right, two political forces that would help him pass the bill in Parliament and who are completely in favour of the reform, if he doesn't manage this, imagine the rest of his presidency. Uh, trade unions will only have a ball at him. But of course, there is a sort of communication battle raging on at the moment between the trade unions, who are you know, very powerful in the state sector, but almost non-existent in the private sector. If Macron has his way, then trade unions are also in a bad position. So there's a sort of raison d'etre battle between the two, and it might end up in the streets. Agnes, thank you. That was the Paris-based author and journalist Agnes Poirier. Her book, Notre Dame, The Soul of France, is available in bookstores now. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. There are currently, give or take, 125 million Japanese and 51 million South Koreans. On current trends, by the turn of the 22nd century, those numbers will be 75 million and 24 million, and skewed disproportionately older. Japan and South Korea are the most imperiled canaries in the coal mine of demographic decline. Joining me now from New Jersey is James Ramo, a social demographer and professor of sociology at Princeton University. James is also the Henry Vent III Professor of East Asian Studies at Princeton. Jim, you've just returned from Tokyo, one of the countries we're interested in here. Is it right to think that the demographic decline in Japan and South Korea is more pronounced than it is in other developed nations? Uh, That's a, a very good question. And I think it depends on how you are thinking about fertility decline, the demographic change you mentioned, and particularly the time scale. So for sure, Japan is one of the earliest countries to fall below replacement level fertility for a long period of time. So certainly in that sense, it's more pronounced than other countries. South Korea, as many people are well aware, has the lowest recorded fertility rates in human history for a large population, that is. So in that sense, I would say that South Korea is also more pronounced. But having said that, you know, it's a matter of degree, right? So there are many countries in Southern Europe, for example, Spain, Italy, Portugal, Greece, as well as those in East Asia, China, Taiwan, where arguably the issues are very similar. Is there any overarching reason you've been able to discern why this has been so precipitous, especially in South Korea? 
That is the big question. And if there was a simple answer, <laughs> that would be wonderful. This is social science. This is human behavior. So there is no real simple answer. But I think that in my field, demography, for example, I think the conventional wisdom for understanding why fertility in particular is so low in both Japan and South Korea has to do with the gender landscape, if you will. I think first it's important to recognize that conditional on getting married, forming a family, fertility is not necessarily any lower in Japan or Korea than it is in the United States, the UK, whatever. The issue is getting married, forming families. And I think that's where we really focus a lot of our attention when we try to understand low fertility in these countries. What are the reasons why young men and young women increasingly delay or choose to never marry and therefore never have children? There is no non-marital childbearing, unlike in most other Western mm -hmm. countries. I mentioned the gender landscape. I think there are a lot of reasons to think that the work environment family expectations, family norms, and so on, are such that young women in particular are kind of faced with an either-or choice. You can have a career or you can have a family. It's really hard to have both. And for men, I think the expectations of being sort of the primary earner and breadwinner, if you will, in that kind of environment may also be increasingly unattractive or unattainable for some people. The aspect of women making this decision is something that I think drives demographic mm. decline across the developed world. It's gone, and please stop me if I'm wrong, but it's gone hand in hand with female emancipation everywhere, as women now realise or are allowed to have options beyond merely staying at home and raising a family. But again, some of the numbers or some of the polling from South Korea in particular is extraordinary. Something like 65% of young women, 45% of young men saying they simply have no interest at all in starting a family. How sudden has that been? Is that a single generation shift? No, it's something that I think has evolved over time. And I think the nature of that evaluation of alternative life paths has changed as, as you mentioned, women have increasingly achieved higher levels of education. I think if you think about South Korea, for example, 70-80% of young women and men go to four-year universities. It's not quite that high in Japan, but it's still quite high. Access to meaningful career-type jobs, it may not be the same as it is in Sweden or Germany or the Netherlands or whatever, but it's certainly higher than it has been in the past. And that's not something that sort of happened overnight, but has unfolded over a period of decades. I think there's a tendency to think, and this is certainly true if you listen to Japanese politicians, it's a women's issue. This is women choosing not to get married and not to have children. But I think that's a real misconception. And you mentioned the very high levels of both men and women. And I think it's really important to understand that the decision to form a family, that's not something women make on their own. That's a joint decision, obviously. And the factors that are perceived as impediments or difficulties in balancing the different things that people want out of life, that's relevant for both men and women, I think.
In both Japan and South Korea, this is obviously of concern to the governments. Governments fear declining populations for, I mean, fairly sentimental, atavistic reasons of national prestige. You don't like to feel like you're governing a literally dying out country. But there is also the hard-headed economic concern, which is if there are not going to be any more young people and there's going to be increasing numbers of old people, then who on earth is going to pay for and look after the old people? What kind of steps have we seen the governments of Japan and South Korea take to try and encourage the production of more Japanese and South Koreans? And have they had any luck with any of them? So another question that has kept many people in my field (laughs) busy for the past several decades. With respect to what has been done, I think that there are sort of simple things that have been done, such as raising the age of eligibility for full pension benefits, reducing some of the levels of support with respect to medical care costs at older ages, co-pays increasing, things like that. But that's really a kind of drop in the bucket, if you will. And the politicians, the bureaucrats who are trying to tackle this from a policy perspective, they're smart. They understand exactly what we just talked about with respect to the core issue, you know, not being people are living longer, but people aren't being born (laughs) as the real reason for population aging and population decline. A real emphasis has been placed on trying to lower the barriers to the ability to have both. So going back to that point we were just talking about with respect to the tension between having a career and having a family. And there are many, many, I mean, countless policies that have been implemented over the past 20 or 30 years designed to enhance childcare support, access to high quality daycare, the ability for women and men to take time off subsequent to birth, maternity leave, paternity leave, other efforts to minimize work-family conflict, facilitate the balance. And if you look at the data to answer your question, it doesn't look like there's been much effect of these policies. But I think in my world, we always ask, what's the counterfactual, so to speak? Mm. What would the world have looked like in the absence of these policies? And of course, we don't know that. And perhaps in Japan, the total fertility rate would be like it is in Korea now in the absence of these policies. It's really hard to know that. It's impossible to know that. But I think the bottom line is the policy goal surely has been to raise fertility up near two, (laughs) if possible. And that has not happened. There's another key difference between these two countries and those European countries which are grappling with the same conundrum is that Japan and South Korea, for various reasons, have never been terrifically hospitable towards immigration. Are they going to have to change their minds about that? Is that a conversation that is being had? Indeed, that is a conversation that's being had. My favourite answer to any question, I think, is it depends, or yes and no. And I think this is one of those questions that can appropriately be answered with yes and no. I think that attitudes towards immigration certainly have changed in the past 30, 40 years, but surely not enough. And the real difficulty here is the average Japanese person, by virtue of, I would argue, excellent media coverage of demographic issues, is pretty savvy. The people in power, the policymakers, they understand this as well. But I'm not sure that people grasp the absolute magnitude of immigration that would be required to stabilize the population. It's orders of magnitude larger than anything that's even on the table with respect to feasible levels of immigration. So it's that tension, you know, how do we solve this 
literally intractable problem with respect to immigration while not dipping our toes in the, the less desirable aspects of immigration water, so to speak. Jim, thank you for joining us. That was Professor James Ramo of Princeton University. This is The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Now, the developed world's younger generations face challenges over and above subsidising the dotages of their ancestors. Theirs have been lives defined by the 21st century's economic turbulence and, in many places, massive housing squeezes. If property and family look like increasingly improbable ambitions, how does it change their outlook? I'm joined now by Stephanie Hegarty, journalist and population correspondent at the BBC, and by the journalist and author Marie Leconte. Stephanie, I'll start with you. There is, of course, this conventional wisdom that people get more conservative as they get older, and part of the reason for that assumption is because as they get older, they do things like acquire property and raise families. But we are seeing in several jurisdictions across the developed world that younger people are more and more reluctant to have families. What do you sense is driving that? Well, yeah, what we've got is two very different and very opposing situations where most of the developed world, the population is getting older, people are having Mm. less children. The populations in a handful of developing countries are getting younger and growing much more rapidly. But here in places like Europe and East Asia, Russia, the US, the dynamic behind the population decline, well, this multifaceted really, but I think it started really in around the 1950s, 60s, as women started to work. And then we came to rely on this two-income household. And that creates problems when it comes to who's going to do the domestic work at home. Where you have the most obvious impact of that is in East Asia, in the developing countries between what men and women do at home. And women have to do the bulk of the work at home mm. and also have a very competitive work environment as well. So they're really busy at home. They're really busy at work. And there's a lot of young women saying, I don't want that life. You know, I'm looking at other women who are exhausted. They can't keep up. The pressures of their families, their in-laws, their husbands, the pressure to kind of have these perfect children, have these perfect homes and husbands really not helping out. They're just saying, no, I don't want to do it. I've seen that in my reporting when I've spoken to young women in Korea, in China now, in Japan. They're just saying no to that lifestyle. And unless those governments and businesses can come up with policies that really encourage more of an equal dynamic at home, more of an equal dynamic in the workplace, it's very unlikely that they'll be able to challenge fertility declining because the only countries that have had any success in trying to tackle declining fertility rates are some Scandinavian countries, even when they did in the kind of 90s, early 2000s with very holistic policies Mm. around gender parity, really making it conducive for men to take more paternity leave, for it to be more equal, for a lot of paid childcare, all of those very holistic policies, very expensive policies. They created a little bit of a pushback against declining fertility, but again, it wasn't that dramatic. So it's really hard to convince people to have children once they have decided that they're not going to or going to have fewer than, say, generations before them. But Murray, is part of the difficulty that developed countries are having in persuading younger people to have children, and this is obviously a decision that by definition gets made by younger people, particularly younger women, is that a lot of the... I guess, safety net that used to underpin family life just isn't there. It has got harder to buy property. There is a sense that if you join the workforce now, you will be working harder and longer for less in the way of reward. Does that sound like an accurate diagnosis to you? It 
it does. And, and, and I sort of think there are sort of two ways of looking at this. So again, yes, the you know, negative thing is actually it is incredibly hard to have a family these days, especially in kind of big cities in the West. You know, I'm seeing obviously in London, a lot of my friends who are on good salaries, you know, talk about maybe having a second child the way that people would normally talk about, you know, maybe buying a third mansion. <laughs> you know, can they actually afford it? Which is quite mad. I wonder if there's a slight positive, if I suppose bittersweet side of this as well, which is that it's actually life has got better, especially for young women to exist in the world. You know, I'm currently 31 and childless and my life is pretty nice. And I don't feel any kind of need to reproduce right this second just to have something to fill the time with because I've got a job, I've got a career, I've got a social life, etc. You know, so I do think that there's a slight positive thing here of normal life, childless life, I suppose, has become obviously is no longer a taboo thing to do, but is also can be more fulfilling. So I think if on one side you've got childless life has got easier and more fun and on the other side it's become harder and tougher to be a parent and be a working parent and actually be able to give your child the life you believe they should have then you know of course it's no great surprise I think that people are either not having children or having fewer children or having those few children later in life. Stephanie, are we reaching some sort of logical conclusion and perhaps countries like Japan and South Korea are in the vanguard of this in a way that it is the usual trend, isn't it, that as more opportunities become available to women, sort of more economic, more professional opportunities for women, as women get better educated, as women are more readily permitted to embark on careers of their own, they are less keen on having children? Well, I don't know because the situation in East Asia is so extreme because women are in a a less fortunate position when it comes to opportunities. You know, there's more discrimination. True enough. So it's difficult to marry your career and your family. Mm. And whereas in Scandinavia, where it's easier to marry a career and a family for both mums and dads, people are having more children. Some of the demographers I've spoken to in Scandinavia were saying that it's not just government policy, it's work culture as well, where for mums and dads of young children, it's acceptable to leave work when your child's sick. It's acceptable to have to go leave early to do the school run. There is a culture of family life that's accepted. So I think as we see more gender parity, we may see a bit of a kickback. We might see fertility levels going back up because it's easier to have kids when both parents are equally involved. And it's easier to succeed in your career when men and women both take a bit of a kickback in those years when they have young children. So there's three kind of main institutes that look at demography and they differ in how they project our world population is going to go. And one of the main things they differ on is whether fertility is going to keep declining, fall off a cliff, or if it might just increase again at some point when these inequalities that we've seen over the past 50 years as women enter the workforce, if they can kind of work themselves out, if we can reach a model where things are fairer, whether people will be inclined to have slightly bigger families. I don't think we're ever going back to the six or eight or ten children families of my parents' generation in Ireland, but I think we could see a little bit of a bounce back. Mario, I want to pick up on something you've already alluded to, which is one of the fairly fundamental difficulties of starting a family in a big city in most places in the developed world, which is the difficulty of finding somewhere to actually house that family. What's your sense of how the real estate booms across the world, especially in the big cities, have affected the political outlook of people, say, who are now under 40 and for whom being able to get on what is thought of as a property ladder does seem akin to walking on the moon? (laughs) 
Well, I think the problem is that, you know, th th there's normally an age at which people, or at least a lot of people, kind of start the slow slide towards conservatism, and that does not seem to be happening anymore. So looking in Britain, I think that in 2015, I believe, the point at which people became more likely to vote conservative than Labour was 38 years old. And it's now, you know, somewhere around 87, <laughs> only slightly exaggerating. I, I do think, you know, at risk of being glib, there's no capitalism without capital, right? And so I do think that people can be, even if they have some quite traditional Tory values of, you know, kind of aspiration or even being quite socially conservative, etc., if they're not seeing anything being done to kind of alleviate their problems, then that's not going to make them, I think, change their minds or look kindly towards sort of more right-wing parties. So I think that that is a big thing. But also I think there's a slightly deeper and perhaps slightly more like philosophical problem, which is that it's really hard to grow up and to feel like a grown-up when you don't really have access to any of the traditional markers of adulthood. So be that, again, you know, owning your own home and even stupid things, like, you know, being able to put some holes in the wall because you've bought a painting that you like. And the, the idea of being, you know, sort of like 37 years old and in a successful career, not being able to do that because you fear you may lose your deposit feels incredibly humiliating. You know, again, as a result, because you're spending so much money on rent, then being incredibly worried about the pension you may have, or, you know, it may impact your ability to go out and have the sort of social life that is actually not the social life you had when you were 21. And I think, you know, to use myself as an example, I do kind of definitely drink in the same places I was drinking in when I was 19, because actually my disposable income has not changed massively. So I think that it, it does impact into that your kind of sense of self as well, and how you progress in the world and through life. And as a result, you're probably not going to end up gravitating towards the kind of, again, very much quote unquote sort of you know grown up responsible politics which again is a slightly more esoteric side to this but i do think it matters stephanie we're talking about developed countries which are concerned that they are running out of young people or they don't have enough of them there are of course countries especially those in the global south where those in charge might be somewhat vexed by the opposite problem which is that we have loads of young people and we're not sure what we're supposed to do with all of them obviously a huge young population in theory is a resource of enormous potential. Are there countries that you're seeing that are actually figuring out how to harness this? Well, we saw that China did. It benefited massively from this demographic dividend where you have a big chunk of people at the working age and not too many elderly people or young people, both of which are expensive for an economy to care for. So China did that. And now Perversely, its population is kind of falling off a cliff. But India is at that sweet spot where it could as well. And it all comes down to government policy and how the economy is handled and whether it will be turned into an opportunity or it will be squandered. Of course, like the global population, the rate at which it's increasing is slowing down, but it is still increasing. So there's plenty of people, plenty of young people, plenty of people being born. We're not running out of people. If anything, the idea of a population decline in any country is a political one because it can be solved through emigration. I think half the next billion will come from only eight countries. Mm -hmm. Five of them are in Africa, Nigeria, Egypt, Ethiopia, still growing very rapidly. So those people are available. You know, if Japan wants to increase its working population very quickly, it can. There's plenty of people of working age out there. It's just a political decision whether they want to or not. And Japan's 
huge part of its problem is that it's been so anti-immigration for so long because we've been managing, in Western Europe, we've been managing population decline through immigration for decades. It'll be interesting to see whether we get to a point where countries are clamoring for immigrants mm. rather than trying to keep them out. You know, Are we going to get to that point where we realise what value they're bringing to our economies? We can only hope so. There are, there are three of them conducting this conversation. Murray, this may be a back-breaking reach. I might not have thought this all the way through, but stick with me. If we talk about those two very different sets of younger generations, either in the developed countries where there's arguably not enough of them and in the less developed global south where there's loads of them, is it arguable that the one thing they do have in common, is there some collective angst engendered by having no adult experience really of having lived through a protracted economic boom, as opposed to those of us who were fortunate enough to spend our 20s in the 90s, which frankly were a bit of a doddle. (laughs) Oh, no, absolutely. And I think that's a, you know, there's a massive thing there of you do have to kind of, I think, realise that, you know, there are kind of two different sides here. Like the first one is a kind of, you know, basic human right of in the case of housing and kids, you know, wanting to have a decent place that you can afford, where you can actually raise children in a healthy and safe way. But then I think the other side as well of the equation is just expectations, which may be fair or unfair of actually, you know, we were raised, so, you know, I was born in the early 90s, but I think people around my age, you know, I think our parents very much raised us with the expectation that we would do better than them, almost certainly. And actually, you know, in many cases we did. That is kind of no longer the case. So I think, you know, that the kind of subtext to a lot of these anxieties among the sort of millennials is actually saying, but hang on, I thought I would be able to provide my children not just with the sort of upbringing I had, but probably one that was even better so they can keep getting better, etc. And suddenly we're seeing that that's not the case. So no, no, absolutely. I think that the world is clearly changing. It's not obvious that it's changing for the better. And there's no real guidebook for, you know, where we go from there, how we address our expectations, how much are we expected to change those expectations. And, you know, there's no great surprise. I think that that creates quite a lot of angst, again, because we're not entirely sure what we're supposed to do next. Just as a final thought, then, I I do want to ask you each in turn, and I'll ask you first, Stephanie, at some point, this cohort of people we are talking about are going to end up running the world. What's your sense of what kind of world they're going to end up running? No, I was just thinking you were saying the 90s were a doddle because I graduated from college, uni, just as the first, the sorry, the 2008 crash was kind of mm. kicking into place. And it feels so unjust that now we're about to go through <laughs> another one. No, but uh, I, I was genuinely wondering about that, the effect of 2008 and how that has hung over people ever since, this idea that the whole thing can just come tumbling down like that. Yeah, I think I mean, it must put a, a lag on, on your career, right? Or it's definitely, I mean, I work for the BBC. As long as I've been there, it's been this sense of uncertainty. There's just been cuts, cuts, cuts. And I know that's specific to the political situation with around the BBC at the moment. But it's also happening in our entire industry that we are so insecure. And I don't think it's just journalists. We've had this switch from a jobs for life kind of economy mm. to this more short term economy. So I think maybe we're more flexible, more resilient. I don't know. Well, what impact will that have when people of this generation are running the country? I don't know. Some of them already are. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a terrifying thought. But, Mari, what do you think? Do you get any sense that at some point, I mean, those fortunate older people who own property, they're going to have to bequeath it sooner or later. And at that point, do things revert to normal? Or does this slightly traumatised collective generational consciousness think of another way to run things? But I mean, I don't know, as it happens, I was actually interviewing prominent members of parliament who are currently under 40 for a feature this week. So I'm glad you asked that question. I do think that what will be interesting is that their 
priorities will probably be different. So speaking to one member of parliament, for example, who's 36 and, you know, and he kind of came into parliament and who was really shocked to find, you know, just how little the climate emergency was being debated because, you know, he said, he's like, you know, for me, that's not something about the distant future of the planet, you know, in decades after I'll be dead, like that it is about my future, that that's a very real thing for me. So I think that on green issues, for example, there will be a lot more pressure to get things done and get things done quicker. And then, yeah, and again, you know, childcare as well. So talking to especially female member of parliament, they were saying, well, you know, we feel quite lucky, obviously, because we've got quite high paying jobs, but all our friends are basically saying, you know, just please, please, someone in that blasted building sort out childcare. So I, I, I do think that there will be a, a switch when that happens, at the very least, if not entirely in style of governing, but at least in terms of that kind of priorities. But I don't know, you know, with that being said, Rishi Sunak in Britain is 42. Emmanuel Macron, again, was elected also in his 30s. And I'm not entirely sure that they're governing like kind of, you know, millennial, I don't know, punks. <laughs> um, so I'm not, you know, it, it's ultimately it is, I think, about the systems, isn't it? So I'm, I'm not convinced change will happen the moment that, you know, the first person born in the 90s you will not be me, becomes prime minister. Maybe as things go along, then there will be more kind of lasting change in terms of styles of governance. Stephanie Hegarty and Marie Leconte, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's all for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.